everybody. I hope you guys are doing good. Happy Tuesday and welcome back to the Wisdom for Wealth podcast with me, Lelo Mashatile. Guys, your support is invaluable to me. Thank you so much for showing up week in, week out. I cannot believe that we are actually on episode seven of this podcast. It's been such a joy ride. I've learned a lot. I've received so much feedback that I really, really appreciate. And, you know, I'm, I'm learning so much as I go along in terms of how I want to make this podcast better. So I hope that you guys keep engaging with the content, keep throwing some feedback back to me every single week. Just keep, keep showing up for yourself. I think that's what I enjoy about financial conversations, that it's, it's really about making you better. I aim to serve you. And so just keep listening, keep showing up. And before you know it, you're going to know so much about finances that your financial intelligence is going to be through the roof. That said, guys, you know, one thing I can't believe is that we are less than 60 days away from 2023. That is so, so scary. I, I can't believe how fast this year has gone by. But I don't know about you. For me, it's been a good year. I've I've grown in leaps and bounds. And, you know, this podcast is one of the results of some of the growth areas that I've had this year. Um, and so, as I've mentioned in previous episodes, I'm going to say it again until you guys actually do it. I'm hosting a free masterclass on financial goal setting, which I'm hosting on the 23rd of November, 2022. You know, we all know how it goes. Every single year, people start the year so excited, so enthusiastic, and everybody is just like, this year is my year. This year, I'm going to do it. This is the year where I'm going to make it. And I think all of that is admirable. It's all amazing energy. But we also can't deny that there's so many people that start on a high and like a few months into the year, people have already stopped going for the thing they declared they were going to do. So I want to have a conversation with you guys about a goal setting method that has worked for me personally. I've seen growth in my own finances using this method. And so I thought that as the listeners, as the people that engage with Wisdom for Wealth Academy, that you guys would benefit from what I've learned. So some of the key things that I'm going to cover in this webinar are the mindset shifts that are required to be able to win financially and to even move the dial on some of your financial goals. I think that's an important conversation because some people assume that the reason they're not reaching their financial goals year after year is because they're not disciplined enough or because they don't work hard enough or because they just suck. And that's not true. Sometimes the problem is in our mindsets. You know, it's not enough to say we've got goals. We need the mindset that goes along with those goals. And so join me in this conversation. I'm going to walk you through my framework that has worked for me. I'm going to share the framework with you and I'm going to deliver it all to your inbox. And so go ahead and sign up. I've placed the link on the show notes, just sign up. And if this is something you know you need, there's probably other people in your life that need it too. So please go ahead and share it, share it on your socials, share it with friends, family, just anybody around you that you know needs to financially get ready for 2023. I hope that you guys will join me there. It's fast approaching. So go ahead and just sign up.
So this week, we are back with part two of the property investing with Tim Mushiri. I had such a great conversation with Tim when we recorded this that I had to break it up into two parts so that you guys could get the full conversation. And so it's just going to pick up where Tim and I left off in the previous conversation. And I hope that you guys have your notepad ready, your pens ready, because Tim dropped a lot of gems that I know that are going to be beneficial for people that either own properties or people that are still looking to get into the property market. So I hope that you enjoy this one. Point number five is to diversify your investment portfolio. So, you know, now we might go very heavy on a certain postcode and, you know, like if you're talking about Santon right now, prices have generally stagnated. In others, it could mm-hmm. be great right now, but then, you know, down the road, you've got crime issues or yes. water issues or whatever it is, and then the values just go down. So if you've got all your eggs in one basket, you're exposing yourself to a lot of risk. So mm-hmm. it's, it's a good idea to diversify. Um, but it's also, I say, even more important to invest in an area that you know and understand. So what we said, at least for starters, um, this is going to change over time is we'll only invest in areas that are within 15 or 20 minutes drive from where we live. So if there's any issues we need to deal with, if there's anything that changes in those locations, we'll be the first people to know, and we can take action accordingly. If there's crime issues or whatever in that area, we'll be the first people to know, and we will take action. You know, So it's, it's always best to invest in an area that you know and you're very familiar with before you venture into others. But I'd say as a long-term objective, it's important to diversify. So the, the sixth one I'll say is, uh, is manage your own investments. So when we started, like when I was doing property viewings, I put up the ads myself. I would meet the tenants. I would analyze it. I'd get onto TPN, do the credit checks, all that stuff. I used to do everything myself. It is an issue. I would go in with the, with the plumber or whoever it is and fix it. And I was completely hands-on. And so I know the ins and outs of how that whole thing works. And as I mentioned, we have spreadsheets and stuff that show, you know, the profitability of all the properties and everything. So completely hands-on. I'd say over time, um, a lot of the cost savings that you'd get by doing things yourself get eroded. So like placing new tenants, I don't really do that anymore. I, I rely on on agents to do that. They just do it better. They do it faster. And I don't necessarily want to spend the time. I can't do it that well. So there we've, we've involved professionals, but what I don't really believe in, and this is me as an investor, but for other people, this will not apply. Maybe it might be the right approach for them is completely outsourcing everything to, to third parties. So like investing in funds and real estate investment trusts, or getting some of these property management companies to do everything for you. Maybe I'll get there down the road because, you know, it'll get to a point where I'm not really getting much for the time that I spend on this, so I'll have to delegate stuff out. But I think it's extremely important that you are very familiar with what you're you're doing. So there's some companies out there who will manage the property and everything for you, and it's not necessarily a bad thing. It costs you money. It might be 10% of your rental amount, which will make your investment negative in many cases. But there's a lot that you can learn from them. And it's extremely important that you remain hands-on. Otherwise, 
you know, you know, stuff could happen and you don't see it coming or you miss an opportunity to build your expertise. And uh, the last one I'll speak about is uh, leverage. So we, I mean, for our home, we, we, there's really no value that you get out of um, taking a bond. Well, there is when you're buying, but pay it off. It's like having a bond on your car and pay it off. That's, that's my view. Um, but on the investment properties, we use as much debt as as much OPM as we can get, and uh, and and I think we discussed this. We probably we, we discussed this quite a bit at the beginning of this podcast. That yeah. there's not many investments where you can use other people's money, and and the math is very simple. If you have a property that earns a return of ten percent, and you can borrow. of the amount at 9%, then the return on whatever you put in there would be like, I don't know what the number is. I haven't done the maths, but like 14, 15%. Um, And you can buy, if it's 20% debt equity that you have to put, let me take that again. If I have got a million rand, I can buy one property that makes me 10%. Or I can get a bank to give me a bond of 80% and I'll buy four, five properties where I'm paying 9% on the bond and on the money I put in, I am getting 13, 14%, just Mm -hmm. working the number roughly. I haven't really worked it out. And you're doing that over five properties. You spread your risk wider and et cetera. So if you can use leverage in real estate, I mean, that's exactly the way to go. Obviously, don't overdo it or don't overextend it because what happens is in those months where, like I had this issue at COVID, where units fall empty, people have lost their jobs, they've moved back to the Eastern Cape, and you have units that are empty, If but the, the bank still expects you to pay everything that you have committed to. If you don't have reserves, then you could end up in a little bit of, uh, of trouble. Then the other thing, which is, I, I wish I had a, a spreadsheet or a model I could share with you, is the amazing thing with debt is uh, if I have that property for a million and I borrow 800, my commitment to the bank is to repay that 800. And so if at the end of 10 years, the property is worth 2 million, my debt is still just 800,000. So what you could actually do, and this is where it gets nice if you look at it long-term, is you can borrow some more. If the bank says that you can only do 80% of the value of the property as loan, in 10 years, you can borrow an extra 800,000 and use that to buy another property. And you just keep doing that over and over. That's what you call refinancing. So the value of the property is good. You take in more debt um, without putting in any more equity. So if you're putting aside a small amount of money or, or you're or you started with 1 million, um, after 10 years, you know, that could be, you know, four or 5 million in equity that that is worth, um, but you've not put in an extra cent of money. You're simply just refinancing the properties as the value goes up. So that's one advantage of uh, living in a credit-based society where generally in the long run, rent, uh, rental income will go up, cost of everything will go up, the value of the properties will go up, but the amount that you owe the bank remains the same. That completely works in your favor. 
And if you're investing yes. in real estate long, long term, that's something that you should take advantage of. Great, great. Okay, those are my seven points. I feel like I have, geez, that was heavy. <laughs> I think people need this. I think these are the things that nobody actually tells you that going to the bank to ask for a mortgage is not the only way to finance a property. But I've got a question for you. So how do people find OPM investors? Like where does somebody look for that? Well, frankly, the, the easiest OPM investor is is a bank. bank. That, that, <laughs> is, that is it. <laughs> and there are some banks that are, I wouldn't say they're easier or better, but they are a good option at a certain stage of your life. But I, I'll say they're the easiest. Now, if you if somebody was to say come to me and say they've got this great investment and they want me to put up the money, I would be extremely skeptical. I mean, the first question I'd ask is, what is it that you're doing that I'm not able to do myself? What is your track record? What is all all this, all that? Banks generally, especially when you're starting out, they will not get into that level of detail. They just want to know what is your income, what is your credit record, etc. So but I will say that as you grow bigger and bigger and you're having bigger portfolios and stuff, then the OPM world grows bigger. So there are funds out there that just specialize in real estate investments. And I know quite a few, the banks can do deals that are structured differently. There are, you know, big funds that will invest in this kind of stuff. So, but I'll just say that many of them tend to be a little bit more sophisticated and they'll ha- ask uh, much more difficult questions. But for some people, it's just such rich auntie or uncle or parent that you have um, who's willing to take a shot with you. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, most people don't have that, but maybe there's a few who do. But I would say banks are generally quite receptive. And the one thing I will have to emphasize is keeping a good, clean credit record. It is so important and many people take it for granted or you overspend yourself, you get tainted on your credit record. When you go to a bank for a mortgage, they'll start getting difficult. If, and, and I'll tell you that if a bank, if you go to a bank asking for a mortgage on your primary home, they will generally be quite receptive. The moment you go asking for a mortgage on an investment property, the questions become five times more. And if you've not got a good, clear credit record, it's very unlikely that they're going to give you a second thought. So that is something else, something that you need to take into account. And then also the other thing which can be quite annoying, but it's just how banks operate, is if I'm buying a second property as an investment property, I need to demonstrate that from my current cash flows, I have got enough room to pay for that, assuming there's no rent. So... If I want the bank to lend me $1 million and I have projected that, okay, uh, on this property, I'm going to get 10000 a month in rent. And, you know, if you deduct everything, the bond, the levies, the rates, the property will pay for itself. The banks will tell you, I don't care. Do you have room to take on an additional ten or 8000 a month in bond payments? If the answer is no, then please, let's move on. So... The point is you have to, if you're going to get into this, you have to be a good saver. You, you have to demonstrate that you're living below your means. Mm, I love that. I love that so much because I think it, it highly demonstrates 
you know, that don't use property as just that investment. You still need to be able to be a good steward over your own finances. Um, generally, you just need to be good at managing mm-hmm. your money. Yeah. I've got two questions, more questions. So does flipping actually work in South Africa? Have you seen it be mm-hmm. done and it be a fruitful exercise? Answer is yes, but I don't think it works too well at the moment. I, I don't because, okay, look, in the U.S. it works spectacularly. Most of the properties there were, well, it's a very old property market. So there's very many old houses with lots of deferred maintenance. Then there's a lot of people who rent and they're renting high-end properties where they've got landlords who don't put in any more money or they don't really have the means to put in more money. Uh, Maybe this was an inherited house and all that stuff. So there's a lot of deferred maintenance. And so in those kinds of markets where there's a lot of deferred maintenance or people having homes that they don't look after, et cetera, there's a lot of opportunity to do flips. Now, I think in South Africa, the challenge, I'll say I'm not an expert on this, but our first property investments were done with the intention of possibly flipping. So you buy a property, you put in money to fix it, and you hope that whatever the final cost of the property would be will be less than what you would get if you were to sell it or at a fair price. So the problem with um, South Africa at the moment is, or let me not say the moment, is there's not that many properties from what I've seen except higher-end properties where there's a lot of deferred maintenance. A lot of the apartments and so on, most of them are fairly new. They were just built 20, 30 years ago. So they've not got to a level where there are long-standing issues. For the standalone houses, yes, maybe there could be opportunities there, but it's going to cost a lot of money. And the market to sell those properties at the moment is just not there. So you could get lucky. I mean, you you get a great property, you um, put in money and you flip it and you get a great buyer. It is possible. But from, from what I've seen, it's probably not what it was previously where you had a market where prices were increasing. So uh, like there's a friend of mine, I'm, I'm answering this in a lot of questions, with a lot of words. There's a friend of mine, he would buy a property, he lives in it while he renovates it and then sells it at a profit. But in that market, this was like in, you know, at least 10 years ago, if you had a good property, investors were there ready to buy it. Buy, 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 buy. People were ready to buy. They just did not want to put in the time and the effort to fix houses. So then it was good. But now if there's no buyers, then you can't really flip it. And if you're renovating with the intention of renting, you will just not get a return. But um, but in everything, that is me as somebody who doesn't do flips, looking at a market from outside. I'm sure there's people who live on flipping and they make uh, a killing out of it. And yeah. that's not me. It's very involving renovating houses. It takes a lot of time. If you're going to choose to give it to a third party, a contractor to do everything for you, like they do on these property shows in the U.S., you'll spend a lot of money and you'll just not make a return on it. So you have to do it yourself. It's just not for me. But my gut sense is the market isn't right for that anymore. Okay. I agree with you. I think, and for the longest time, people have been speaking about flipping and I'm like, I don't think, I don't think that's actually as viable in South Africa as it is in the U S 
I wish it were because renovating looks cool. <laughs> but yeah, no, it, it does look cool, and I've done it a couple it of does. times. It's great. <laughs> it it's, really, really does. But yeah. you know what, Tim? I think the one thing that we aim to bring, and I aim to bring through this podcast, is to get as many people as possible to be more financially literate. You know, yeah. get people making better financial decisions for their lives. I feel like there's people who sit hoping for miracles. And the truth is that maybe they don't need a miracle. They just need principles. My final question to you is this. You've mentioned how you read many books and you had to educate yourself really fast. What mm-hmm. are some of those books that you read? Oh, geez. You should have uh, warned me. I'll give you... I'll have given you a long list. So this is me quickly looking. You're more than me. welcome to still send it offline, but tell me what you remember now. <laughs> I, I still want the books. <laughs> okay, so I could give you a list. I'm just looking at my Audible app. Uh, okay. Okay, but I can I can give you one or two from memory. So the ones that have, and, and again, this depends on your level of financial literacy. The books that I'd say made the biggest difference for me, and I think for most people, they'll be the most useful. Um, there's a book called The Millionaire Mind by Thomas Stanley William Dunk something. I can't see the full name over there, but the key thing that that book emphasizes is on saving and on living below your means. I mean, the the pathway to wealth is not, well, there's a few people who get mega rich, you know, like Elon Musk, where, you know, $44 billion to buy Twitter is not such a big deal. He'll never have to worry about living below his means. He, He has more money than he'd ever be able to spend in a lifetime. But for most people, that's not the case. But you can still get wealthy just by living below your means. I think that's what that book emphasizes. Uh, there's a book called What I Learned Losing a Million Dollars, something like that. I read it. I can send it to you after this. The, the key takeaway is or, or was that I used to wonder, I mean, in my finance training, there are people who would say the investment approach is fundamental. So I analyze a company or stock and I pick what the best is based on the numbers. The others would be contrarian. They'll say, okay, if everybody is going right, I go left. If everybody is buying, I sell. The others who would say they're technical analysts where they're saying, if everybody is going up, I make sure I go up with them, but I do it early. If, if, if things look like they're going down, then I exit before everybody else. I mean, those are fundamentally contradictory approaches to investment. There are people who will tell you, you know, property is the way to make money. Ah, look at me, I'm a billionaire. Um, Donald Trump or whoever, um, I made all this money just building houses and golf courses and stuff. Others will tell you, you know what, property is a waste of money. I am investing in startups. I'm doing all this stuff. But the reality is, and maybe this would be something to emphasize from this podcast, is there are so many ways to make money, so many ways, many of them contradictory. But there are a handful of ways of losing money. So making money is not about how you make it. It's more about how you don't lose it. If I, if I can put it that way, 
And uh, so what it emphasizes is educating yourself, understanding what you're investing in, managing your risk, managing your downside, etc. And so the very first thing we spoke about educating yourself is if you're going to get into property, you need to go in as a property investor, not a property speculator. You need to do exactly what you're doing. You know, the risks. Uh, I mentioned that, you know, you could buy a house for a million and then when you want to exit, you're only able to get 800. You have blown 200,000, um, just like that. But you can also, could have made 200,000. So what side are you going to, to be on? A lot of that has to do with your timelines, your education, etc. So it's extremely important that you equip yourself. So those are, in property investing, those are the two books I, or in actually all kinds of investing, those are the two books that I thought were the most useful for me. But I'll, I'll look through my list and see if I find a few others. I've, I've got lots and lots of them. Please do share. I love to read. <laughs> like, right. if, if I could read while I was sleeping, I'd do that because I've got, two, I've got more books than I have time to read. Yeah, you see, now we, we all have that problem. But uh, what, I, what is probably most revolutionary for me, so the one thing I have is uh, reading books put, puts me to sleep sometimes. So when I'm sleepy, I just pick up a book and, you know, after one or two chapters, I'll be, if I'm struggling to sleep, after one or two chapters, I'll be sleepy. Uh, but the one thing that I do that's extremely um, helpful is audiobooks. So I'll listen in the car, I'll listen while taking a walk. And actually in a year, I'll get through 20, 30 books in a year. And of those, maybe five would be physical books or, or on Kindle. The rest would all be audiobooks. It's the best thing that's ever I hear ever. you. I've been doing audiobooks a lot this year. Yeah, I think, I think, yeah, and I think I'm, I'm, I'm getting used to the idea of listening. I think sometimes during bedtime, if I'm struggling to sleep, then I'll just listen. Um, Usually yeah, what happens like, is uh, when I wake up, then I'll be like on chapter 20. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder where I dozed off. So, but yeah, I, it's, no, it's you know the what best I do? thing ever. I uh -huh. actually set the timer. So I set a timer to say, go to the end of this chapter. I should be asleep by the time... It gets there. If I'm not asleep, then I'll just extend it an extra 15 minutes or whatever. Oh, I never thought of that. So, Tim, is there any last piece of advice that you would like to give to the listeners? Uh, yes. Just um, save and develop a habit of saving and finding ways of forcing yourself to save. I mean, for me, um, getting into real estate was all about saving or forcing myself to save, and I think it's important. Some interesting statistics I looked at the other day um, for South Africa. There's this, um, what do you call the gross national savings rate, which is a fair approximation of how much people save on average in a country. Um, so as you can imagine, South Africa is a little bit on the lower side. So it's as of last quarter, or rather quarter two, it was 13.3% for South Africa and of which 0.2% related to households. So that's individuals like yourself and myself, and the balance is companies and basically just reinvesting profits. But if I, I looked at it all the way from like 2006, rough, from roughly 2006 to 2020, the domestic savings rate in South Africa was negative. So on average, people were getting into debt. People were not saving, which is... It's very difficult to build wealth and it's very difficult to build a strong economy on that backbone. 
So South Africa's 13.3%. So on average, 13.3% of all income generated in South Africa was saved. And most of that was done by companies reinvesting profits. In China, it is 45.5%. In the EU, US, it's like 20s. UAE, Singapore, it's high 40s. So basically the countries that are investing a lot outside of their home countries or that have, you know, booming industries or real estate and so on are the countries that have got very high savings rates. And you've heard those numbers. And so I'd say a lot of the challenges that we're having in these countries because people just don't save and we don't have that culture. We spend whatever we get. I do acknowledge or appreciate that it's very difficult, especially under the circumstances, to put away money, but it's the only way you can build wealth. I mean, okay, you can get lucky and play the lotto, and but that's going to happen to one in a million people. You can get lucky and get a breakaway idea and you get a nice startup and you become a millionaire, but how many people is that going to happen to? Most people, you're just going to build your wealth through savings. And um, a good rule of thumb is to save 20% of your income. We do higher than that. And that's part of why we're able to do real estate because it's a very capital intensive um, investment. But a good rule of thumb is to put away 20% of everything that you earn. It's probably difficult to do 20% um, right now, but the way we did it was as our income increased, we just made sure that our expenses increase at a slower rate so that our savings rate was able to go higher and higher over time. And that's probably the way to do it. So if you're not able to put away, if you're literally stretched to the edge, edges right now, then you could say, look, if you have um, an increase of 5%, then you'll just make sure you manage your expenses within 2% and the remaining 3% you put away and you just carry on like that until you get to 20. That's the way to build wealth in the long run. A lot of what we are sold as ways of getting wealthy is really not practical. It starts with saving. Sure. That is so good. What are some of the things that are contributing to the low savings rate? What, what is South Africa not doing that China is doing? Why are they able to save 45%? And I mean, that's a scary statistic. Only 0.2% of that 13% is related to households. I'm like, that is scary. Correct. Yeah. I mean, and this is, this just started in 2020 due to COVID. So I think people were pushed to the corner and they're like, you know what, let's start putting aside money. Let's reduce our spending because we don't know what the future looks like. But before that, it was negative. So on average, people built more debt than assets in a year. So I think a lot of it is, I'd say, structural. If I can, that's probably not the right word to use, but it's structural. So if you're in a society where there is no safety net, if I can put it that way. So if you, if it's every man for themselves and, you know, if things go wrong, there's no one who's going to step in and help you, then those countries tend to have higher savings rates. So that's definitely the case in, in China. That's the case in a lot of developed countries that um, if you're unemployed and stuff, then they still, the government can kick in and, and help you here and there. So there's really no motivation to self-insure, if I can put it that way. So that's one major issue. I'm not saying that people should be forced to self-insure, but just realize that that could be one of, one of the issues. The other issue, which is maybe a little bit more controversial, is I think generally the cost of living has 
gone higher than incomes that people make. So so net-net over time, your ability to save goes down. Like right now with inflation and so on, people are, are having a really, really difficult time. Uh, so that one is also a little bit out of your control. And then there's also a lot of keeping up with the Joneses. So if you view yourself as being in a certain level, living in certain neighborhoods, getting to and from work in a certain way, it comes at a cost. And part of that cost is not being able to build savings. So uh, I think it's many factors, but it varies by individual. But those three are definitely three of them. Yeah, look, I think definitely, I'm so glad that you mentioned that most wealth will be built through savings. Like, Like you say, people will teach people stuff that is only built for the anomalies. Like it's not everybody is going to come up with a killer idea. Um, And so that speaks to the importance of saving. But I think overall, this is a really great conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for being willing to come and have a conversation with me to really pour all your knowledge out. And I'm sure it's not all, but you've given so much in just the time that we've had. And I know that people are going to benefit from this. Where can people find you in social media? Okay, social media, probably the easiest is uh, LinkedIn. You can you can do LinkedIn, Tim Ushirinyaga. I'm happy to connect with people. Um, I have, I think I created some notes for this conversation. I'm happy to share them with you. If people want to reach me, I'm, it's also good if they can, they can reach me through you. I mean, I really don't care, but I've given my name. And yeah. I'm, uh, I'm not on Twitter. Uh, I'm on Facebook, but... I don't know. I'm not very good with it. Um, (laughs) I'm a little bit traditional. I'll put it that way. Thank you so much. So ladies and gentlemen, there you have it. My goodness. I have learned so much from this conversation alone. I just hope that you guys have taken notes. I hope that you realize that To start your real estate investment journey, it's going to require great financial literacy, going to require that you educate yourself. So get into the habit of just really going in depth in terms of your finances. Look into, you know, how can I get better? How can I save better? How can I reduce my debt? You've heard the statistics. It all sounds so scary, especially with the economy and where it is right now. And so I hope that you guys have enjoyed this conversation. I hope that it's helpful to you. Reach out to me at wisdomforwealth underscore on Instagram. And you can definitely just leave me all your comments and we will stay in touch. So guys, from me, it's bye-bye.